Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Stephanie Benedetto to the show. Corporate attorney turned fashion tech and sustainability entrepreneur, Stephanie is the co-founder of Queen of Raw, a marketplace to buy and sell unused textiles, keeping them out of landfills and turning pollution into profit. Prior to starting Queen of Raw, Stephanie worked as a lawyer in the fashion, media entertainment, startup, and technology industries. An advocate for women in business and sustainability, her companies have been featured in NPR, Good Morning America, The New York Times, Vogue, WWD, L, Cheddar, WCBS, United Nations, Fortune, Entrepreneur, Wired, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and Fast Company. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm great, Raj. How are you? Stephanie, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. Stephanie, where are you currently located? I am normally in New York City, in Manhattan, home sweet home, if the accent doesn't give it away, um, but have to come to the suburbs for a little fresh air and space for uh, my, my kids uh, in light of everything going on. And how have you been holding up during the pandemic? You know, I think if any good can come out of this, right, it's that everyone stays healthy and safe, but also that we wake up to what's going on in the world and to some of these issues, right, that are bigger than us or felt bigger than us historically, but that we can now have the power to solve and and really build a better, more sustainable future for, for our children. I totally agree with you. Now, I usually start my show by asking my guest something interesting about them, but I want to start with you by asking... Queen of Raw. Can you give me some background on that? <laughs> you bet. Um, so when we were coming up with the name, Queen of Raw was the first name that I thought of. Um, my family has always called me the queen, and I've always wanted to empower um, other people to feel like the kings and queens of their domains and what they do best. And also when it came to sustainability, I didn't always love that word sustainability. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. And raw to me, getting at raw materials, what is raw and real in this world and getting to things essence. Um, so it spoke to me and it also was available on all social media and as a dot com. And I was talking about it to my friends and family and getting their feedback and nobody liked it. They all thought it was either, you know, a raw foods movement or pornography. And, you know, I thought about it a little more and I tried a ton of different names and just kept coming back to it. And my gut told me it was right. And I thought about it a little more and said, you know, raw foods movement sells, sex sells. So I'm going to go with the name and it's nothing if not memorable. And what we're doing, we have a bold ambition. We want to change the world and we want to be remembered for it. So I went with my gut and I'm glad I did. It has served us well ever since. Well, wonderful. And congratulations on grabbing that .com. You know, they're hard to come by nowadays. You bet they are. So, uh, and, and also a lesson in learning as an entrepreneur, kind of also go with your gut uh, you know, and take 
educated risks and learn from them. Absolutely. I don't want to skip over the question regarding something interesting. So if you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? You know, I'll tell you one thing that's been very formative about who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I'm tackling the kind of the world's water crisis. Um, My story kind of begins two years before I was born. I had a brother named Stephen Jeremy, SJ for short, and um, he was playing at a friend's house when he was 13. And his friend uh, found accidentally his father's gun, didn't know it was loaded. They were playing cops and robbers, and he was shot and killed, uh, my brother, by accident. Now, I share that not because, you know, I want to begin with something terribly sad, but because it was terribly powerful in my life and in why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I was born two years later and um, I was named after him. I'm Stephanie Joy. He was Stephen Jeremy. But I hold near and dear the way I was raised by my family and, and with that experience. Life is precious. Life is short. It can be shorter in some circumstances than others. And really think about taking advantage of every opportunity and every day to do better, to have bold, big dreams and ambitions, and to go change the world. And it has truly shaped how I think about things and how I hope to instill in others the feeling to to go do bold, big, great things. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing such a personal story and not to change gears without, you know, understanding the gravity of the story. But you mentioned doing what you're doing. Can you give an overview regarding the Queen of Raw? You bet. So, uh, you know, my family has actually been in the fashion and textiles industry for over 100 years since the 1890s. So very much grew up around my great grandfather and my grandfather and heard about the old school way of doing things. And in so many ways, it seemed so powerful the fashion supply chains around the world. But in so many ways, there was just so much waste created. And why? Why did it have to be that way? And why weren't businesses paying attention? You know, there's all these unused textiles from raw materials to finished goods, up to $120 billion a year that sits in warehouses collecting dust or gets burned or sent to landfill. And I just looked at this and I said, there has to be a better way. Now, funny enough, I didn't do the family route. I went to Wall Street as a corporate attorney, but ended up specializing in fashion, technology, and sustainability. So I guess at the end of the day, right, we very much get back to our roots and who we are and what we were born to do as we kind of started this conversation talking about. And so when the market crashed, in 08 and 09. I stuck it out a little bit longer, but um, looking at what was going on in the world took it as my opportunity to go build great things and tackle this uh, supply chain waste problem head on and never look back. (laughs) So it's interesting you say that runs in your blood. I'm actually a product of the garment industry back in London in the late 70s and 80s. My mother was a seamstress and even through today, she still sews. And I can tell you one of my best lullabies is going to sleep to a sound of a sewing machine. So fast forward 30 something years and I have an 11 year old daughter who spent most of the summer, turned 12 this summer, and she spent so much of her summer this year sewing stuffed animals. And um, she's taken my needle and thread, which I've had for years and years, but it's, it's interesting, like you said, you know, it runs in your blood and I've been in and around fabric all my life, all kinds of fabric, all kinds of situations where I've been around the garment industry from, from quality control to supply chain. And um, so I've been really interested in speaking to you. You mentioned a few different things. You mentioned, you mentioned, you know, fashion and technology, and you also mentioned burned and landfill. Can you give some examples of both those issues that you're trying to challenge right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it's funny when I first started looking at this issue years ago, um, I would go and I'd talk to all these fashion brands and retailers around the world. And I, I would talk to them about their waste, all those unused textiles. And it just wasn't top of mind for them. You know, sometimes they're, if they had early on some sustainability teams, they'd say, oh, this is such a, you know, a nice to have, but it's not a have to have. And we talked to some of the financial officers and they'd say, well, you know, it's uh, uh, some liability is on our books of unused inventory but maybe it's only X and it's not really that impactful to our business. You know, and then there were some CEOs who were like, yeah, this is nice for us to talk about, but it's just not our top three priorities this year. Well, if you fast forward to today, right, and the world that we're living in, um, nothing has come out of this, if not an awareness, aside from what matters most to people, but also seeing what happens, right? When supply chains break down, when your Amazon order doesn't come on time, when, you know, there's been this massive amount of waste and damage to the planet and to people around the world. And I think people have woken up to these issues. And so fast forwarding today, many of those original brands and retailers who really couldn't get their heads around how important and valuable this was to their business have since come back to us. For the CEO, this issue, right, is top one to two of priorities that they need to tackle now. For the CFOs, it wasn't just X in unused inventory and liability on the books. It was actually 15X or more representing up to 15% of their bottom line in just one year, you know? And, and so, and the sustainability teams now, it's, you know, you're nobody if you're not somebody who has a sustainability team who's looking at these issues because it's critical to supply chains today to survive and to how they're going to thrive tomorrow. So, you know, happy to see that, um, like I said, if any good can come out of it is that the world has shifted to waking up to the value of waste and unused inventory. And the beauty of kind of how we think about it, about sustainability and about unused textiles is with our solution, nothing has to happen to the unused textiles in order for them to get put back into the chain of supply and demand and reused. We are a global marketplace and Anyone from a student maker, crafter, quilter, such as in your family, Raj, to the biggest brands and retailers in the world, they can buy and sell their unused textiles, right? Keep it out of landfill, but it also helps them turn all that valuable money, all of that valuable stuff that would be burned into pollution into profit. So, and nothing has to happen to it. They are in like kind. And so I think that's really given us an opportunity here to look not just at how impactful this can be on people and planet, but also on a business's profit. And I think when you come at what's going on in the world and opportunities to do better, you have to address the profitability of the solution too. And I, I think that's what we've really had a great opportunity and what's been um, you know, a part of, of our success and worldwide adoption and what we're doing now. And, you know, so speaking, just to give you a little bit of metrics and not to dwell too much, like I said, on the negative, because I always like to look at how we can take the negative and turn it into a positive. Um, We did mention $120 billion with a B worth of unused textiles do sit in warehouses every year or end up burned or buried. Um, And the one other statistic that I'll highlight, um, a high level and then a very personal level is on a high level, if we continue with the current pace of textile production. By 2025, over two-thirds of the entire world's population 
will face shortages of fresh water and be exposed to hazardous chemicals from textile production alone. So we're not talking about 100 years from now. We're not talking about 50 years from now. We're talking about today and on our shores. And a lot of people don't know that. They just didn't know that for every shirt they purchase, an average 700 gallons of water to produce it and a third of a pen of chemicals. So, um, you know, it's staggering. And I think that when you look at that, you also see that there's massive opportunity, um, not just to do better with this waste, but fashion and supply chains can literally solve the world's water crisis if we think about innovating in this space. And I think that's where I really like to take it. And we leverage technology in order to provide that solution. And can you share what kind of technology you currently leverage? Yeah. So we knew to build this solution um, that we needed to first and foremost create a community because the technology, it's important. It's how we deliver our solution. But at the end of the day, it's the community we've built, the buyers and sellers that we're bringing together and the problem that we're solving that matter because the greatest technology in the world, if you don't have the community, it's not going to do anything for anybody, right? So we focus very much early on on building the community, on talking to our customers from small to large about how they think about textile waste, what they're currently doing with the waste, what the value would be to them of opening up a global marketplace to connect the dots around all this unused inventory and, and to become leaders in this space looking at textile waste. And that has served us very well to this day. Um, but in order to get there, of course, we wanted to leverage technology to provide this bridge, the bridge between buyers and sellers. And so we built Queen of Raw originally as a marketplace. Um, we did focus initially on the United States. Um, but very quickly, because supply chains are so global and this issue is right all over the world, very quickly had to make our solution totally global. So we can serve everywhere in the world. We're on every continent now and building up um, stronger footholds in the obvious key regions around the world. But as we do that, and as the marketplace has grown, um, we realized that there was even more we could do for our community, especially for the larger brands and retailers who were also buying and selling in our platform. And so we with them, we now have built a private portal for our largest enterprise customers. And there, of course, they can do the buying and the selling of their unused textiles, but we also provide them a lot of valuable data and analytics, help them figure out with reports in real time, why do you have all this waste? Where does it come from? What's it made of? Where does it go to? And the crucial question is how over time can we minimize those waste streams? You know, my, so for that, we leverage really powerful and cool tools that we've built um, using machine learning AI and using blockchain, um, which have been powerful ways to deliver real results to our customers, to show them the ROI of what they're doing but, and tell them in real time things like the amount of water, toxins, energy, and dollars saved by leveraging our solution. So for those that might be wondering, I'm going to walk through a scenario and please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. If I remember correctly in my days back in the fabric industry, you may have you might have a you know a bolt of fabric that's let's say 30 yards long, okay? A roll of fabric 30 yards long and you have to make, you know, x amount of garments or products from this roll of fabric. And based upon the pattern that you're using, there's waste along the edges and outside, but also sometimes remnants, you know, between one and a few yards left on the roll. 
Is that some of the issues that you're addressing? Yes, that is absolutely some of the issues that we are addressing in queenofraw.com, which is really for our small and medium size uh, brands and retailers and individual maker, crafters, quilters, and students. Um, but funny enough, as we looked at this problem deeper, we realized that for large enterprise customers, um, they are sitting on sometimes up to, I kid you not, we're working on deals of a million yards of unused inventory. And this I'm talking about is fabric on rolls in mint condition, still sealed, um, you know, but wasn't used because an order, you know, an order color changed or a pinstripe and pattern changed, or they thought they were going to sell a lot more of a certain shirt or trousers when they were forecasting so far in advance, but they ended up not. And it just sits in millions of millions of yards, yards upon yards. So, you know, there is definitely the, the smaller scraps and the off cuts that we sell, but also in, in full volume and full yardage. It's staggering. And again, you're bringing me back to memories because I remember if there's a nap change, a pattern change, or a shade change in a particular you know, set of products, then essentially that fabric is unusable and gets counted once a year in old inventory. But the disposal of that fabric, you know, what happens next? I guess that's what you're taking care of. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, this problem had only been exacerbated by the heavy emphasis around the world um, across brands and retailers, right, on doing more, doing faster, keep putting out new collections, new styles, quicker and quicker. And as you do that, inevitably, there's going to be more and more waste at all different touch points across the supply chain as it connects the dots around the world and tries to move even quicker. I think, you know, that's been interesting to see in light of COVID right now, right, as things for, have in some ways slowed down. Um, supply chains are able to reevaluate things. We're working, our business, despite the circumstances, has been growing exponentially month over month through COVID because I think people are waking up to these issues. Businesses are waking up to these issues. They realize that in some ways they're sitting on a gold mine of unused inventory that they can monetize and help them survive and navigate what's going on today. But also now that their innovation and sustainability tar- departments are keyed into this issue, they can look at how can we solve these issues going forward and how can we do better and thrive coming out tomorrow. And I think we're going to see a change in supply chains. Things may slow down, but if they don't slow down, at least they're going to go more to on-demand, right? Local production, on-demand, using more efficient resources that make more economic sense and in a more sustainable way because, you know, customers are demanding it. Do you think there'll be any onshoring in this industry or reshoring of business? You know, it's a good question we get asked all the time. And we look at at what's going on in the United States historically. And, um, you know, there there was a a very strong, powerful community here. It's what, you know, my great-grandfather got into first and foremost in the 1890s. He, when he came over on a ship from Austria and landed at Ellis Island, he settled into the Lower East Side of New York. And he had to make a living, right? Chasing the American dream as an immigrant. So what did he do? He got uh, he got into um, handkerchief manufacturing and eventually becoming a furrier in, in, in the textile industry. In the Lower East Side, it was the original garment district in New York. And it was a powerful kind of period that lasted long after that of uh, a lot of made in America, a lot of work in the Carolinas, in New York, in California. There's still some parts of it left. There is surprisingly a lot of dead stock and unused inventory left. But for a while, it just became so cheap and quick and easy to do things offshore. And to answer your question and to your point and what's going on around the world, I think there is this resurgence and look at what can we do to support local communities and build up talent, 
and jobs and resources and manufacturing here in the U.S., um, even if it costs a little bit more. But the surprising thing is, um, in some ways, it actually can cost less. If you look at dead stock inventory, unused inventory and resources, of which there are a lot in the U.S., it actually costs up to 80% off wholesale prices. So using those kinds of resources, you can bring down, right, a lot of your, uh, cut your costs in such a significant way. And you can put all that money saved into doing good and into more efficient practices in other parts of your supply chain. And I think that's what we're seeing going on right now is people looking at what are the opportunities to bring some manufacturing back to the U.S. to make it more efficient and localized and on demand um, to produce things. And, uh, and, you know, the significance of that, too, is that in the future, we can avoid areas that may inevitably be impacted by disruption, right, and spread out our resources and our manufacturing. I so agree with you. So can you explain the business model of Queen of Raw? Yep. Good question. So for Queen of Raw, it was very important to us to um, be open and to build the community as we talked about. So queenofraw.com itself is totally open. There are no membership fees. There are no listing fees. We just get a commission for every sale in the marketplace. Um, that was very important to us to align our business interests with our community, to focus on making the match effectively, quickly, and efficiently between a buyer and a seller, and to help keep you know more and more of this waste out of landfill. As we've been growing, Growing with enterprise customers, in addition to the commission for every marketplace sale, we do now have um, those tools I was talking about and that data and analytics that help those businesses um, do better in their business. For that, we, we do charge a subscription fee. So, you know, but those are the key parts of our business model. And as we grow, my ultimate dream is to, you know, continue to take this around the world, across raw material categories and across industries. And, um, you know, to do that, I think it is the future to see the value that waste has, to be able to minimize waste uh, across raw material categories. A lot of people ask me why we started with textiles. And of course, you know, it's in my blood. So <laughs> it was a place to start. And obviously with fashion, it's a very sexy, cool, powerful industry that touches everyone everywhere in the world every single day. Um, but, uh, you know, this issue can be and what we do can work for any product that is produced by any supply chain in any category, right? It's just about identifying what is the waste, who could use that waste, and how can we build the market and the community for that waste? So my mind's racing right now with a couple of ideas, but before I get there, Good. I want to ask, what was the um, what was the conversation like? What was the feeling like the first time an enterprise customer reached out to you or you reached out to them and they said, yes, we're interested? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's thrilling, especially to hear the no's that we talked about early on in my uh, in, in this process when I was talking first to um, those big brands and retailers to understand what this issue meant to them. To hear those no's turn around now and become, you know, yes, just shows the power that, you know, even if you're a little bit early to what you're doing, build the following, have the courage of your conviction and find the early adopters. We found some great early brands and retailers who really believed in what we were doing, who understood the problem that we were solving, the value this had to their business to improve their top and their bottom line and came on early on. And now it's even more fun to see some of those initial no's, like I said, turn around and, and say yes. And some of those who we haven't even been able to reach out to yet, trying to get a hold of us, right? And cold call us. It, it's, it's an incredible feeling. I can tell you that um, beyond that feeling, one of the coolest things I've done as a as a startup was 
to pitch live on stage in front of a huge audience in 60 seconds, um, Ashton Kutcher. That for me was also a key kind of defining moment in our career um, and in my in my business's path. Not just because it's you know it's awesome to be on a stage um, and to be able to pitch Ashton Kutcher, but maybe even equally as important or more important is being able to get your business idea down to sixty seconds. Because if you can win over anybody, whether it's Ashton Kutcher or anybody walking down the street in sixty seconds, what you're doing, um, you know, that's something that can be kind of a guiding light. And has pushed us forward in what we're doing and you know something we're proud to stand behind and I can say I can that 60 second pitch has come in handy a number of times and for anyone looking at kind of early stage funding or how to test an idea and get it out there I highly recommend these kinds of competitions and awards and opportunities out there are great to help you refine your business model your the economics of your financial projections your pitching um, and sometimes comes with some great press and awards and celebrities of course too. Yes, they are. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. And you touched on the story about behind your brother, but you know, your obvious passion behind waste and energy and water. So what's your why? What what drove you and what keeps driving you? Yeah, no, it's a great question and definitely inspired by kind of having big, bold, hairy, right? Audacious goals. Um, I think every day about my four-year-old son and my newborn. I do have a child that I just had during COVID. And uh, I think every day about who they are, what they're going to become in the world we're leaving them. And I want them to have clean water to drink, clothes that aren't toxic to wear, and, and literally a planet to live on. And I know that we can be a key part of making that happen. Um, you know, and, and on the days, inevitably, whereas in a, in the startup world, things move fast, you have some great wins, but of course, there are going to be some challenges and some losses. And as I look at those, I think back to the metrics. You know, to date, we've saved over a billion gallons of water around the world, and we're just getting started. That's enough clean water for 1.4 million people around the world to drink for three years. And we're just getting started. So I say that not just because I'm really proud of the work we're doing and because it matters to me personally and professionally, but also because for anyone who thinks that they can tackle head on a huge problem, right? Like the world's water crisis, um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to, to, to get out there, to look at something that's really scary or seems really challenging and try to tackle it head on in new creative and innovative ways. And don't be afraid to go change the world because it's, an, in fact, as the quote goes, the only thing that ever does. So you mentioned challenges and losses. What would you say are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned on your journey? Yeah. Well, so a, a couple interesting things. The first is I, I talked about those early no's who, you know, did some of them did become yeses uh, years later. But with the early no's, I also learned don't spend too long trying to convince them. You definitely want to give them a chance and, and understand why they said no, but find your early adopters, the people who get the vision and the dream and want to support you publicly, because that is so valuable to understanding who your core customers are and what the initial solution is going to look like. And of course, then as you grow your business and over time, some of those no's will become yeses. Some of those no's will come back and be no, but if you could do this, we would be interested. And maybe the time is right for you to add that offering to your solution. Uh, you know, I think I really learned that, um, it, it, 
it definitely, you, you don't want to spend too long, too early on, on too many of the negatives, but get to the core and learn from them, right? And and so that, that's been really valuable to us. The other thing I learned is it's so hard in the startup world, right? We want to, we want to work hard. We want to perfect everything we do, especially when it's going to be out there publicly for customers to use, right? Um, but another thing I learned through this process is, as a startup, especially early on when you're, you know, trying to get funding or bootstrapping it and um, looking for your early adopters and customers, as we talked about, uh, you have to watch every dollar and don't spend a ton of time, money and resources on um, perfecting the product and the technology. You know, that will come over time. It can only get better and grow and improve from there and it will. But get your idea out there. Get the website up and running. And I laugh about saying this because um, my co-founder and I, we got this website up in 2018 as the marketplace, um, ended up going through the Techstars Anywhere virtual accelerator. And, you know, there really wasn't even much product on it. But we got it up there. We started learning from the customer searches and inquiries that were coming in from the messaging and the storytelling that we were putting out there. And, uh, you know, now continue to perfect the parts of the product that really need to be perfected. So um, that, that, that's another good lesson learned. And the final one I will mention is, you know, we've been very fortunate in what in the storytelling that we've done and in the response we've gotten from some of these competitions and press and awards. And for people out there, especially early on in what you're doing, I would just be very cautious about how you spend your dollars around PR marketing or advertising, because there are a lot of free opportunities out there, especially when you're talking about such big world problems that touch everybody everywhere in the world. Um, there are going to be, and you will find avenues to tell that story that don't require a lot of your dollars. Those are wonderful lessons. You know, earlier you mentioned big, hairy goals. So 2025, magic wand. Yeah. What does Queen of Raw look like at 2025? Alibaba done right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, talk about big, bold ambitions, right? I look at Alibaba and everything, you know, Jack Ma's done an incredibly interesting history and powerful organization with, um, you know, in, in the B2B space and marketplaces, especially around what, similar to what we're doing. But I just think that there's huge opportunities, especially in business to business, to do things with even more transparency, traceability, sustainability, you know, management, honesty, trust, quality, curation, all those things. And, you know, that's really what we're trying to do. Um, no disrespect to them. They've done an incredible job in what they've done well. Um, but here, you know, and then if they want to come acquire us in the future, great. But, uh, you know, that's where we're looking to go. I love the idea of Alibaba done right. You know, you've sprinkled this entire conversation with messages and advice, but some specific words of advice or words of wisdom to the audience, what would it be? Yeah. No, I think it typical lawyer answer as you know it depends um but it depends on who you're who's out there and what point you're at in your career path um and I'm by the way always happy to share my email my phone number and I regularly give it out to anyone in order to help support the community that has supported me to give back and share advice um I think one thing I've learned um going along the theme of don't be afraid is don't be afraid to go into a crowded space, right? So many people are co so concerned about what's proprietary to them and about the cool technology they've built. And don't talk to any other people or competitors or potential partners because, you know, you don't want to give away any of your secret sauce. And 
Yes, there's an element of truth to that. But if you're truly innovating and you're truly building a community who trust you and of customers who follow you, you can constantly keep innovating. You can keep ahead of the rest of the pack and be a leader in this space. And then good luck to the competition, right? They're always going to keep chasing behind you. And then you can end up being the last player in the market who, who really dominates. And uh, I think that that's something that, you know, you may not hear from every investor, or every uh, person out there, but it's something that we've held close as we as we do what we're doing. That reminds me of the old adage, the second mouse gets the cheese. Yep. Yeah. Right. You learn from those who came before you and and uh, improve upon it. And I also say, especially, you know, as a woman in tech, um, woman in sustainability and, and a woman out there raising big dollars, uh, you know, it's important for us to support each other, to find mentors, advisors um, and other like minded people who can support what you're doing, who believe in what you're doing. And then it's on us also to give back to to others as well. And I, I think too often Competition is great. I obviously love it. I'll compete on stage, you know, in 60 seconds and have a ton of fun doing it. But at the same time, I want to turn to all those people in the competition and how can we support each other, right? And the good people become become friends and colleagues. And I think that makes a difference too in your business. Absolutely. Now, before we go, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the uh, Global Maker Challenge or the Make for Prosperity. You recently announced as a finalist. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. As I mentioned, you know, doing these competitions um, have, have been so valuable to our business in the customers and partners they've brought us, in the mentors and advisors, in the, the press and, and the monies. So um, we applied for uh, and regularly applied for competitions all over. This one was out of Dubai called the Mohammed bin Rashid Initiative for Global Prosperity. And they really have a vision and a dream um, and an initiative around bringing prosperity globally to everyone around the world world. And as part of this global maker challenge, um, we are in their climate change cohort. So we were recognized and honored as a finalist for the work we're doing in climate change. And we now are in a pitch competition in September to compete for, for the prize. So, um, you know, it's incredible initiative brought us some great, uh, opportunities internationally. And the more you can look at these to amplify your story and your stage, you definitely should because it's been a great opportunity and we're very fortunate to be a part of it and to have that kind of support. Well, Stephanie, I wish you all the best in that conversation. I've so enjoyed speaking with you, brought back some old memories and some new ones too. Is there anything I should have asked you that I did not? Uh, You know, the final thing I will say uh, to everyone is go out there, go make a difference in this world. Um, If not now, when, right? And don't be afraid to go change the world. And uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Stephanie, it's a great place to leave off. Go out there and change the world. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.